Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed with graciousness for how, Lord, throughout generations you have poured out your Spirit on men and women. Lord, and, and even as we see the evidence of your continued pouring out of your Spirit in places like Asbury or in, Wilming, or in Wilmore, Kentucky right now, Lord, we wait in anticipation and expectation for how you will pour out your Spirit all over the world. Lord, scholars and theologians, pastors and priests, men and women all over the world will, will postulate about what it takes in order for revival to be realized in a particular place. And I don't have any answers, Lord, but what I do know is that uh, You are the one that brings revival. You are the one that pours out Your Spirit. You are the one, Lord, that moves men and women to repent. That moves men and women to seek You, Lord, in passionate worship as they get a sense of Your glory. And so, Father, we ask in humility and in and in anticipation. Lord, that You would pour out Your Spirit here. That You would would bring the power of Your Word through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit to settle upon our hearts. Lord, and that we would respond in passionate and glorifying obedience and worship. Heavenly Father, we, we pray for our brother Luke this morning. We ask, Lord Jesus, that either through him or in spite of him, the truth of your word would rest upon our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would make it take deep and abiding root in the soil of our souls. That we may hear, Lord, how you are calling us to repent of both known and unknown sin, to turn to you by faith, Lord, to express in our hearts the glory of worship to You. Lord, may You bless him with clear speech and clear thoughts, knowing, Lord, um, that we are, hearing, uh, we are hearing from the heart of a man who loves You, who eagerly desires to communicate the truth of Your Word, and to see hearts and lives transformed. And so, Lord, we we place ourselves in a position to be moved, changed, and transformed by Your Word. Help us to drop, Lord, all pretension, all pride, all previous patterns of knowing or doing, Lord, so that we may be open to hear from You this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Morning, everybody. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon last night and this morning and praying about it, I had a really uh, 
I had an introduction written to it that I think I'm gonna maybe just ignore. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this, this sermon and really when I set out to write it, I, um, I really wanted to write the sermon that I think, that I wish I had heard several years ago, right? Like we're talking, we're naked and unafraid, we're talking all about shame these past couple weeks. And shame is one of those universal experiences that we all know what that's like. We've all experienced shame in some form or fashion, whether that has been through rejection or disappointment or weakness or vulnerability. We've all had these things that we wish that, we, that weren't true, that we didn't experience I mean, I just know it's a fact that there are those of you here today who have a voice in the back of your head saying, you don't belong here. You've got a secret. You've got a thing about yourself. You've got a thing that happened to you. And you are not worthy to be here in church today. You're not deserving of singing these songs of God's love. You feel hesitant and you're not entirely sure if, if you're the only one in this room right now. You, everyone else has got it all together, but you, you don't. I know that that's a narrative I'm, I'm positive is going through it, some of your heads today. Right? And, and the reason I know that is because I've had that narrative go through my head too. Right? Sin and shame is this universal experience that gets us stuck. It becomes this bondage. It becomes this cage that we find ourselves stuck in and unable to move forward from. And it's powerful. And one of, one of the things is, is that it's an, it's an extremely isolating experience because we tend to believe that we're the only one. Shame has this wonderful way of saying, you're the only one who's got these problems. You're the only one who feels this insecure. You're the only person who doesn't have this all put together. You're the only one in this room today who doesn't belong here. And those are lies. Those are lies. And, and today, we're going to talk about those lies and hopefully remove them, pull them out, and destroy them. Because fear in... We, we've all had this fear of shame and rejection. It's universal. And, and shame wants to keep us kind of stuck. So like for, for example, right, I think this, this kind of sentence here that I'm going to share is the sentence that I think summarizes this kind of mindset of shame. And it is the sentence that we will hear said to ourselves over and over again, is that if people knew the true me, they would reject me, and they would be right to do so. Like, I can't think of a sentence that more accurately summarizes the fear of rejection 
and a, and a narrative of shame in our heads, right? If people knew the true me, they would reject me. And then that last part's the awful part, and they would be right to do so. That's the lie that we have heard in the back of our minds, that I've heard in the back of my own mind, right? And that keeps us shackled. It keeps us from moving forward. I was thinking about a, some, a number of the different ways that this has impacted my life. One of them I'll share, it's a kind of embarrassing story, but I'll share, um, is, so I, if you know me, you know that I recently got married last, late this last year in November, so I've been married a couple months now. Um, but when I met my now wife, we met online through dating apps, right? And um, I remember the time that I came across her, her profile for the very first time. I was like swiping and all that stuff. And then I was like, I saw her profile. I looked at what I saw. I was like, She's really cute. And then, you know, what I did is I didn't send like a little heart or an emoji or send a message. I turned my phone off and put it down and didn't want to pick it back up. And the reason I did that is because I got scared. Rejection is one of my biggest fears. Like, if you want to know something about me, fear rejection. It's absolutely terrifying. And for me in that moment, I had found somebody that I was interested in, wanted to see if we could maybe chat, maybe we could um, connect, maybe we could go on a date, maybe. And then I was immediately going down the road, and I was like, what if like, I'm really interested and she ends up not being, we go on a couple dates, and she's like, Luke, you're such a nice guy. <laughs> right? That was what I was afraid of. I was absolutely afraid of that. And I was afraid that she was going to be right in doing so, that I wasn't going to be good enough. And so I decided, and my fear in that moment was, put down the phone, don't message her, don't reach out, don't take the chance, because at least that way, you won't experience the rejection. See, what I was doing was I was fulfilling, like a, a, I was creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by believing that lie. I was saying, you know what, she's going to reject me in the future. I might as well pre-reject myself and not even reach out to her and just, like, move on. Now, fortunately, I did end up messaging her, and the rest of that is history. But, like, that is one small example of shame, of fear. Right? We call this naked and unafraid for a reason. Right is because there is intrinsically linked with shame is fear. We are afraid of what would happen if we were to be seen, if we were to be known, if we were to be metaphorically naked and viewed and understood and known by someone else. And as I say that, that probably makes almost all of you uncomfortable. Right? Because this idea of being known, of being vulnerable and seen, we're like, can, can, they can see all this except for this part. Because this, this one thing is the thing that, ah, no one can see. No one can see that. We can't talk about that. We can't deal with that. Because to talk about that, to deal with that is, uh, no. 
And so fear keeps us from moving forward. It's like if you have a, a phobia, if you're like afraid of snakes or spiders or something like that, and, and if you were to come up and someone say, okay, that room right there is full of the thing that you're afraid of, whether that be clowns, like whatever, um, what would you do? You would turn around and walk the other way, right? Like you're not, you're not going to say, okay, that room's full of the thing I'm afraid of. I'm going to come in here and open that up and just go in. You're going to, no, 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 you can stay away. And that's how shame works, that fear. Well, if, if I talk about that, it's like entering into a room that we're almost positive has got the thing that we're afraid of. And so all of a sudden, we've got a house full of rooms where we can't go. Topics we can't talk about, people we can't see, right? Because to do so would be to enter into a room that we're absolutely terrified of what's inside of it. And we're terrified because we are believing that narrative. We're believing that statement that you, that I, are worthy of rejection, that we're less than, that we're reprehensible for the things in our life. Shame has a controlling narrative in our life. And shame, shame is awful because it, it's not only self-fulfilling, but it, it, it can keep us stuck in places of addiction, of continual sinful behavior, of a place of unbeing, being, able, being unable to move forward. We lead a, um, a recovery group that meets here on Monday nights, every Monday night. So I'm here every Monday night, and I'm talking about this stuff, right? Talking about addictions, talking about sin, talking about hurts, talking about abuse. We're talking about it, right? Like, we, you're, you're like some of you are getting uncomfortable because you're like, can we talk about those things on a Sunday morning? Like, we're the church. We have to be talking about these things. And... Whatever you find yourself in, if you can identify with anything that is, could be a, an addictive, cyclical behavior, something that you, whether that be alcohol, pornography, um, shopping, binge eating, whatever it is, or anger, or a cycle of negative life choices that you keem, keep to seem, seem to keep repeating, whatever that cycle is, is being fed, one of the main things that feeds that is shame. Because let's say you do the thing that you say, I don't want to do this thing, I don't want to do this thing, I always do this thing. You do it, and then you, you beat yourself up. Gosh darn, did that again. I blew up, I went to the bar, I did the thing that I don't want to do anymore. I'm such an awful person. I'm an addict. I'm a terrible, terrible person. I'm so weak. And you beat yourself up, hoping that if you're harsh enough on yourself, you'll get yourself to stop. And maybe you do for a little bit. And then you find yourself getting to a place where you're like, something hard comes up. You're back into that same situation, the pattern starting over. And what's in the back of your head, whether you realize it or not, is all of those things that you said to yourself. I'm weak. I'm an addict. I'll never change. 
I'm a terrible person. And if those things are true, why would you do anything different? And then you just repeat that cycle. And it's not just that way for addictive or cyclical behaviors, but it's also that way for things that have been done to us. See, sin, sin is bigger than just the things that we do. It's also things that are done to us. We've had some awful things done to us, and they affect our identity and how we conceive of ourselves. And we begin to believe about ourselves things that keep us stuck. Oh, I'm an awful person. I was deserving of that. I don't have a voice. Right? And that keeps us stuck in a place of unable to move forward because we're stuck in an identity, a narrative of shame. This is kind of building off of Cameron's sort of talking about what is shame, and it's this narrative that the enemy gives to us. And we could say it this way, is that shame is a narrative that you believe that results in a false identity that keeps you in bondage. Shame is a narrative. It's a story that you are telling yourself about the circumstances of who you are, your life, your future, your past, and you are believing it and it is creating inside of you an identity of, this is who I am. And that is keeping you in bondage. That's becoming the indicator, it's becoming the dictator of the future of your life. Because if I'm a broken person who never can do anything right, that's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's going to become the thing that you are speaking to yourself every time you make a decision. And that's not going to, you're, you're stuck. You're stuck in bondage. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what we've been talking about these last couple of weeks. And so today, my hope, my prayer, what I want us to do today is I want us to dismantle that. I want us to examine again Christ. I want us to look to Christ and see there, like Cameron was saying earlier, where that transformation comes from. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform your entire life. And I think today is a day that some of you can drop shame out of your life and start to make some change, start to break down that narrative that has been running like a soundtrack in the back of your mind. So today I'm going to be in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 7. When you get there, look for verse 36. That's in the New Testament in one of the four Gospels. Luke 7, 36. And I'd encourage you to kind of follow along with me here. Now, one of the things about, like, the Bible that is, is always in my mind when I approach it and when uh, we're rereading it, and I've even had over the last couple months a couple just kind of like light bulb moments where I realized what I was reading in the Bible didn't always match up with the images and the pictures and the thoughts I had in my head. 
Because maybe, maybe you're like me, and you went to a small little white chapel Baptist church, and there was a flannel graph at some point, and, you know, or maybe you read like a, a children's Bible at some point. And we get pictures and we get storybook images of Jesus and the Bible in our head. And then sometimes when we come and we re-engage the Bible, we still have kind of these storybook pictures. And so today, as I read this passage, as we walk through this, I want to kind of take a moment and say, let's put a little bit of flesh on this. Let's not just picture this in kind of a picturesque storybook Bible kind of veneer. Let's think about how this would have felt, right? There are massive emotions in this text. Let's feel those emotions Let's put ourselves into this picture, into this moment, into this story, and see where Christ is calling us inside of that. And so here at the beginning of this passage in verse 36 says, One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. So first off is that this is entirely different than if you were to invite like someone over to your house for dinner, right? We kind of have this picture of like, you, you know, like having someone over for dinner. You come, okay, come over around like 6.30, bring a dessert, you know, and then you come in and it's just whoever's invited. And if there's anybody else there, that would be really weird, right? Like if you invited just like me over and then like uh, my cousin twice removed came, like you'd be like, what's this guy doing here, right? But that's not, that's not this context. This is different. Right, so this was would have been closer to like a kind of like an open forum, almost. Right, so this is Jesus. He's been going about and he's teaching and he's doing miracles. He's he's well known, and people are thinking, "Here's this prophet, this religious teacher," and then a prominent Pharisee, a important religious teacher in the town, invites him over. And people would have known about this, and he would have had kind of an important guest list, the who's who of the town as far as religious leaders go. And they would have, people would have been freely allowed to come to the dinner, not to sit at the table, but to kind of maybe sit on the outside, stand in the edges of the room, to maybe sit by the windows of the house and listen into the conversation that they were having. And that would have not been like eavesdropping. This would have been totally acceptable. Right? This, is, this would have been maybe kind of like if Cameron and I were to have somebody up here and we were to do like an interview and you guys were all to listen. Right? Something more akin to that. This wasn't like a private function. This was something where you almost were kind of listening in and you wanted to hear like sort of the religious gossip or maybe some uh, theological lecture or thought or discussion or maybe some drama, right? A little bit of debate. Ooh, maybe Jesus is going to get in it with the Pharisees, right? And so this is kind of what this dinner at least is kind of feeling like. Right? And they're all sitting at this table, and not a table like you and I have where it's kind of up to our waist. It would have been down much lower to about here. And it would have been a long table, and there would have been kind of a seating order, right? The host sitting up here, the guest of honor, Jesus sitting over here, and like that all the positions of where people were sitting were important to like where they kind of ranked. And the way they sat, they didn't have pews or chairs to sit in. They would have been sitting on maybe cushions, and they would have kind of sat on their 
kind of like this, and they kind of leaned their legs back out behind them and kind of reclined on the table like that. So they're down there, they're eating, and this is the situation, right? This is the setting. This is maybe in a larger room in the Pharisee's house or maybe in, in an inner courtyard of their house. And there's all these people sitting there coming to hear what they're going to have these discussions. What's, what's Jesus going to say to the Pharisee? What's the Pharisee going to say to him? Jesus has been rocking the boat everywhere he's going. What's going to happen? And now there's this person who's in and amongst the crowd who maybe, maybe other people are giving a little bit more space than the other people says there in this next verse, verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house. Okay. There's this woman. She's not given a name. She's only described as sinful. Said that she lived a sinful life. And this wasn't like, apparently it wasn't a secret. Right? This is an identity that everybody would have known. Right? Maybe as she was kind of standing in and amongst the crowd, maybe against the back of the, um, of the room, kind of listening in, people were kind of looking over at her, giving her that look and look away. You know what I mean? When they kind of look her up and down, look away, kind of like avoid making eye contact because, oh, that, you know who that is. That's her. We know what she does. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about what it was that made her a sinful woman. We're left unknowingly what that is. We don't know. So I don't think it's helpful for us to know. I don't think we need to know. I think it's simple enough to know that she was, her shame was not only private, it was public. People had a narrative, she not only had a narrative she probably spoke to herself, she had a narrative that other people spoke to her. And I have, I just wonder what her life was like and what it was that brought her into this room where Jesus was eating. When she heard that Jesus was going to be at this dinner, what brought her, what motivated her to come into that room? Because I, I can imagine that if she's this woman who's publicly known as sinful, like she would have maybe felt unwelcome in the synagogue or in the places of worship. That she came in and the religious teachers and the Pharisees like, mm, like looked down with her with disdain. Right? She felt like an outcast. Maybe she believed, you know, my life has been sinful. I've made so many mistakes. I'm so broken that there's no way I could ever fix it. And, and she feels helpless and alone. And then all of a sudden, one day there's this man called Jesus. And he's going about and he's teaching. And he's teaching in a way that is so different than anybody else has ever taught. I don't know, this is all speculation, but maybe she was there and she heard him speak his Sermon on the Mount. Heard him talking about, what does, it, what does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because she was poor in spirit. 
What does this mean when Jesus is calling out the religious leaders, those who pretend to have it all together, to be so religious but don't love God? Is this the Messiah? Is this the person that Israel has been waiting for for centuries? And then not only this, is Jesus teaching differently. Jesus is spending his time with people like her. He's having dinner, not just with Pharisees, but with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is a friend to people like her, people who would also be shunned. And so maybe for the first time in a long time, she's got hope. Maybe she's beginning to wonder, maybe this Messiah, maybe there's room for me in his kingdom. Maybe there's forgiveness to be had there. And if only I could get close to him. If only I could meet this Jesus. Not only that, but she begins to have, not only this, maybe this desire to meet him, but this desire to honor him and worship him in a peculiar way or in a special way. And so she, she buys and gets this expensive perfume in an alabaster jar. Maybe she's got that with her in a satchel that she's wearing. And she's kind of standing there and she's listening to the conversation and she's just kind of maybe clutching it a little bit and she's nervous. And what we see happen next is is one of those moments where I imagine the whole room just got silent. You ever had one of those awkward moments where everybody just gets real quiet Everybody looks at each other like, how are we going to respond to this? Right? She, somehow she gets and finds herself behind Jesus. Jesus sitting like we talked about earlier. And I wonder what was going through her mind. Was it just the, the mere thought that she could be this close to the Messiah, to Jesus, to God, the Son of God, and not be rejected? Was it the fear that she was going to be rejected, what was going through her mind because she started to cry. And not just like a small little cry, like big ugly cry, I think. Because, because her tears fell down onto Jesus' feet. Now, I don't, we don't exactly know this, but like the traditional thing would have been for her to take the oil and to anoint his head. But if you look at the passage, that's not what ends up happening. Her tears have fallen on Jesus' feet, and she begins to, she doesn't have any clean cloths or anything like that, except for dirty outer garments. And so she decides, rather, to use her hair. And she bends down and begins to use her hair to wash the tears off of Jesus' feet. Something that would have been even more shocking and shameful. Because hair wasn't supposed to be seen like that in this culture. And then she begins to anoint not Jesus' head, but his feet. We don't know why exactly she chose to do that instead of the traditional thing of anointing his head. It may have been just simply because that's the way it happened, or she was too afraid to anoint his head, and she felt only I could anoint his feet. But she chose to do that. And the whole room, I just imagine, everybody is looking at, Why is she doing that? What's Jesus like? Why isn't Jesus like shooing her away, kicking her? 
Doesn't he know who that is? We all know who that is. That's her. And you can see the public narrative, the identity being spoken, not externally, but thought by one of the Pharisees, the one who invited him. Uh, in verse 39, says that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. There's that narrative, that narrative and identity of shame, who she is. She's a sinner. She's not worthy of being here. She shouldn't be allowed to do that. And Jesus, in that moment, decides to flip the narrative. He turns to Jesus, and Jesus answered him. Notice, Simon didn't say this out loud. But Jesus knew what Simon was in Simon's heart and mind. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. This is the difference between a couple years of wages and a couple months of wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, and then he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins... Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus flips the script. Jesus says, look, you think that because she's the person who could be described as sinful, that she's not worthy of being here. But Jesus decides to flip it and say, no, like, you don't understand. The thing is, is that because she is sinful and because her sins are forgiven, she has more reason to be here than you. Sin and her narrative was no longer a reason for her to be far from Christ, but to be close to Christ. And then Jesus speaks a new identity over top of her in verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sin? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Simon called her a sinful woman. Jesus called her forgiven. Jesus wants to flip the script. Jesus is inviting you to receive a new narrative that changes your identity and defeats shame. Like, that's the point. Jesus wants to change the narrative that you were telling yourself. 
He wants to shut the voice that is screaming to you that you don't belong, that you are not deserving, that you are unworthy, that you are unlovable. Christ wants to speak a new identity over you. He wants to say that you are forgiven, you are beloved, you are his child, you are made in his image, you are redeemed. Jesus wants to change your story. You've got a narrative that you've probably told yourself a lot. And, and you maybe think, you know what, this is what my life is going to look like. We've kind of got an idea of like, I'm just, this is just me. I'm just this broken. And this is what my life is going to look like. And Jesus wants to come in and he wants to add a plot twist to your life so that the next chapter is different than the last. I want to look at and go to the Old Testament for a moment. I'm going to turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this deeply theological and prophetic explanation of the coming of Christ and his work on the cross. I want to start in verse 3. This is a description of Jesus, of who he was, of who he was to be, and what he, his interaction and role was to be. Here in 53 verse 3, it says that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. If you've ever heard a description of shame, that's it. Christ was someone, and his work was to be in such a manner that people would hide their faces from him because of how shameful it would have been to have looked at him. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See, what happened on the cross wasn't just that Jesus died, it was that Jesus bore our sin, our shame, our false identities. And he took them with him to the cross. I was thinking about this, and there's a beautiful picture of this in nature. So if you've ever seen or run into a, a mangrove tree, mangrove trees are a unique, unique type of tree that tend to grow in watery places. Um, and what makes them unique is not just that they grow in watery places with their roots underneath water is that they grow in salty water. They tend to grow near the shore where the salt water from the ocean is kind of merging with the fresh water. Now salt water, like, should kill a tree, right? It's not healthy, doesn't nourish the tree. So how does this tree with its roots underneath water manage to survive? 
One of the ways that it manages to survive is what it does is it takes all the salt and all the minerals and it siphons it off from the rest of the tree and puts it into these tree, into these leaves that you'll see on the tree. And any time of the year, you'll see a handful of yellowish, orangish, reddish leaves on this tree. And those leaves will turn that color and then they'll fall off. And they turn that color and fall off because they are absorbing all of the salts and the minerals, all the things that would be unhealthy for the tree. They're absorbing. It's called the sacrificial leaf, and it falls off and removes that from the tree so the tree can remain healthy and thrive. And that's what Christ does. Christ takes all of the things that would clog us up, that would bring about death, and he has brought them to himself, nailed them to the cross with him, and then put them to death with him in the grave. And then when he rose from the dead, he left them behind and brought with him new life. That's the gospel. And that by faith in Christ, that becomes our narrative. The shame and the the beliefs, the narratives that you have been telling yourself and that even maybe echoing in your mind now. And I'm not just talking to people who haven't accepted Christ yet. I'm talking to some of you who have been following Christ for a long time, but you have been unable to drop parts of your story, unable to let Christ and forgiveness penetrate certain narratives that you still carry with you. The cross of Christ is for that. Christ has declared with his life, death, and resurrection that you are his and that you are no longer your own, but you are his. Through the death of Jesus, our narratives of shame have died with him. They're dead. They've been put to death. They've been, they, they are no more. But sometimes they, they kind of linger on because we still sit with this fear. But what if, like, what if I, what if people reject me? What will other people think? Surely Jesus can't think this way about me because I, I don't think that way about myself. I'm this awful person. I'm too afraid to let people see my weakness, my mistakes, the ugly parts of me. That fear is holding on. And I imagine that in that story we looked at, there was probably fear in that woman's heart. How would that story have played out differently if she had let fear be the dictator of her actions and she had just stayed home that day? She had said, no, like Christ, knowing Christ, being with Christ is far more important than what other people are thinking about me. So how do we get out of this? I was thinking about this in a couple of different ways. How do we get unstuck? I think one of the things we're going to look at Again, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to look, start in verse 1. This passage is an exhortation. It's a call. It's a, come on, you people, let's do this kind of verse. And it says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus, when he was in the garden, right, the night before his crucifixion, right, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way I could avoid the cross? Jesus didn't he wasn't looking forward to it. It was not something that he was just like, he was not some stoic, unmovable person who was just like, oh, I guess you can crucify me. No, there was, there was angst. There was conflict over it inside of himself. And what did Jesus do? He scorned or he disregarded. He said, you know what? To be crucified in this way is going to be shameful. It's going to be weak. It's going to be awful but that is not going to keep me from doing what I know I ought to do. And he disregarded it. And the call here in Hebrews is for us to do similarly, to throw off all that entangles, to take away and remove the sin that is tripping us up, that's keeping us from following after Christ. Whatever that narrative is, that shame that's easily grabbing back onto you, that's trying to keep you stuck in sin and shame, to keep you from pursuing Christ, we want to throw it off. We have to, at some point, we have to say, and we have to do the courageous thing, and we have to say that shame and the fear of shame will not keep me from knowing Christ, will not keep me from moving forward. So my call for you, my encouragement for you is to disregard is to disregard shame, drop the sin and run to Jesus. It's this letting go, but not just letting go, but letting go and grabbing onto. Right? It's not just stop sinning or stop letting shame in these narratives. You can Will, you've been trying that. You can try and will yourself into that, or you can find something that is all much that much greater to grab onto. And that's who Christ is. That's your identity in him. That's the community of faith, the great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. Let us run towards that. And as we do that, drop off the sin and the shame that's entangling and tripping us up. I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to be in verse 9. This is Paul writing. Paul, if you don't know his story, before he was the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he was a guy who was persecuting and killing and executing Christians. Talk about a narrative of shame. Talk about reasons why you would feel shameful. Like Paul could have been when he had that encounter with Jesus and he came to realize that he was persecuting Jesus, that he was persecuting his church and the true believers, that he had missed the Messiah. He could have just said, I'm such an idiot, and never done anything about it. He could have just beat himself up for the rest of his life. But that's not the type of... um, that's not what Paul ended up doing. If you want to look, if you want to talk about a Second Corinthians has so many passages about weakness, about vulnerability, and about Christ and his glory being made visible in that. And this is one of the kind of the summarizing passage of that. So in verse 9 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, it says. But he said to me, my grace, this is Christ speaking to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You notice here that this is the continued inversion of the narrative that Jesus was talking about. Jesus saying this woman is not a sinner, but someone who is forgiven and has much to love. Paul is saying, my weaknesses are not something for me to hide and to be shamed of. They are something for me to show and to proclaim because they are for Christ's glory. I need you to hear that your current story of shame is tomorrow's testimony of God's work in your life. We are stuck in this place of believing that the narrative of shame and lies and rejection that we've been holding on to are the truth, and that 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 is the ultimate indicator of who we are and who we will be. But Christ wants to flip that narrative. He wants to give you a new narrative. He wants to show you as redeemed and transformed as an imperfect person following after a perfect Christ. I'm not perfect. No one in this church is perfect. No one's going to be. We are imperfect people following after a perfect Christ. Us pretending to be perfect minimizes the glory of Christ. Let us boast in our weaknesses and in the work of God in our lives. For that is where his glory is demonstrated. Let us be people who speak and expel the false narratives of the enemy that want to keep us trapped in false identities. Let us remind one another and encourage one another and say, you are a child of God. You are made in his image. You are redeemed and being transformed. You are part of his holy church. You are part of his bride. You are loved. You are cherished. Christ died for you. Let us today 
in every day look to the cross and remember that by his wounds we are healed, that our shame and our sin has been taken to the grave and put to death. Like we were singing in that song before the sermon, only you can turn shame into glory. Only you can turn graves into gardens. That's the gospel. That's how Christ is calling us forward. And I believe that that message is for some of you in this room today. I really do. I hope that you will hear this as a call to lay aside the fear. To stop letting the fear of shame rule your life. But to pursue after Christ. To believe and accept that perhaps being vulnerable, to being open, to coming to Christ and stepping out of darkness and into light, that by doing so, will break the bondage that you've been feeling, that's kept you stuck. Let us be a church where we can let people do that, where we support people, where we lift them up, and we carry each other's burdens with each other, where we're not a church of perfect people, but we're a church of imperfect people following a perfect Savior. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, come to you this morning needing to hear who you say we are. Lord, we need to hear your call on our life again. Hear you beckoning us, not with anger, but with gentleness and love. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would expel sin and shame from us. Lord, that you would press upon us the new identity that we have in you. Lord, your gospel, your spirit is the only one who can do the work in our hearts that needs to be done. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. Lord, I pray that you would bring courage where there needs to be courage. That you would bring compassion where there needs to be compassion. Lord, that we would be a people who don't only talk about the gospel, but who practice the gospel. Who, who practice the act of forgiveness and restoration that we would be a people made whole by forgiveness, that you would drive out the fear and the shame that keeps us stuck, and that you would bring us and draw us close as sons, as daughters, as children, as friends. Lord, might we know you intimately and completely. Lord, I ask that you would break down the walls that we've constructed over time. Lord, even, Lord, I ask that you would just do that. That you'd help us to come forward in worship, to know you. Lord, help us to embody the heart 
of the woman who anointed your feet. Help us to be more like her. Let her be the example for our faith, our love, and our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send us out from here with your spirit, with your love. Lord, that as we have offered our worship and ourselves to you, that you would be faithful to complete the work in us that you have begun. Conduit, I pray that as you go from here, you would know that the God of love is with you, that he is ever present with you in each and every moment of this week, that he is longing to be in deeper relationship with you. And I pray that he would be transforming the false narratives in your life. Conduit, go in peace.